Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series at the University of Sydney for this special event in the Sydney Science Festival Program for National Science Week. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. Before we begin proceedings tonight, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners on the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their lands that the University of Sydney is built. The format for this evening is a presentation from our guest speaker, Professor Mark Dads, and then we'll hand um, some microphones around for your questions. For this year's National Science Week and the second Sydney Science Festival, we've asked Professor Mark Dads if he can explain the latest scientific research into child behaviour. Professor Mark Dads is Director of the Child Behaviour Research Clinic at the Brain and Mind Centre and Principal Research Fellow of the National Health and Medical Research Centre, as well as a Professor of Psychology at the University of Sydney. To quickly tell us a bit more about the work of the Child Behaviour Research Clinic and how you can get involved, I'd like to welcome my PhD student, Vlas, who will give you some information about how you can get involved in some of their surveys. Thanks. Thank you, Meredith, and um, thank you to all the parents who have made all the effort to come here tonight um, to join us for this seminar. And um, I guess one of the important things to think about when you, you've come here is uh, what we're trying to do here is engage the community and the parents um, themselves and really help try to get their help in um, improving our treatments in ways that are going to be helpful for kids that are having these behavioural and emotional problems. And so what we'd like to do is to put an SOS out there to you guys to say, if you are up for it, please fill our survey, participate in our research, and um, hopefully we can uh, feed back some of that information back to you and, and educate the community with what we're trying to do here. Um, and now, in terms of the specifics of what we're going to do, we've got some pieces of paper here. Um, if you could put your email address down and your name and your contact details, um, what we'll get you to do, or we'll request you guys to do, is actually do the survey at two time points, one now and one little bit later on. And that's really going to help us get a better idea of how um, parents think and feel about their children and how they behave and things like that. So if you've got the space in your time to do so, we'd really, 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 really greatly appreciate your input in doing this. Um, so now I'm not going to waste any more time sort of harping on about getting you guys getting into research, but introduce Mark to give us a presentation, who um, is a real expert and a leader in the field of providing treatments for children with behavioural problems. Um, it's, it's common for us to see children with really excessive disruptive behaviours like being really angry, chucking tantrums, um, getting really frustrated, and that parents often report just really finding it very difficult to find the right strategies in order to manage those behaviours. So hopefully Mark will enlighten us with a few more strategies you might find more helpful. Thank you so much for coming out on a Thursday night. I'm like really happy about this. It's wonderful. I, when I was walking across here tonight, I, 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 was, I was kind of reflecting on how nervous I'd been about the title because I thought maybe people don't know what that means. And I actually checked it out with a mate. I rang a mate who's a carpenter and I said, tell me what you think this means. And I said to him, time out in the era of empathy. And he was silent for a while and he said, a weekend up the bush with my mates. 
I went, oh my God, brilliant. It's brilliant. But no, that's not what it's about. It's about parenting techniques. And although we do a lot of research that I'm hoping you may be able to help us with, as Vilas said, I'm actually going to talk to you as kind of a clinician tonight about the idea of time out, which is becoming a very, very controversial technique for parents. So let's go. At the CBRC, we see all sorts of kids. Watch one more. <laughs> the worried well. We see parents with just, you know, annoyingly cute kind of behaviour problems like this, all, all the way through to kids with more severe problems. This is stuff we haven't taught you yet, sweetie. You're not expected to know this until no, someone teaches a circle, not a sphere. It's a sphere, though. It's not. But you need to believe the adults. Last week, he was picking up pencils and saying he's going to stab me in the eyes with them. Don't even think about it. Don't point pencils at eyes, please. That's not safe. He's not doing it deliberately. He's doing it because he's stressed. He can't focus on the work. And he's so clever that he knows he wants to and that he knows he should be able to. I think he might be too big for that wardrobe. <laughs> It's hard. We'll come back to little Corey later. Classic sort of boy we see in the clinic. What we're trying to do is prevent them going on a pathway to mental health problems, substance use, heart disease, all of the things that we know come out of these early emotional and behaviour problems. And the way that we try and do it in the clinic is through parenting. In the words of Matt Sanders, Early, good enough parenting is really the clean water of mental health. And in terms of child psychology and psychiatry programs for kids like this, effective parenting interventions are really the clean water of what we have to offer. And, you know, it really is one of the great achievements of the behavioural sciences that very few people know about, and that is that there are these evidence-based parent training programs, many of which were developed in Australia, which are now absolute state-of-the-art in delivering evidence-based treatment for these kids. And even if you look at a review like the one by Breston and Iberg in 1998, which is nearly 20 years ago now, there had been 29 years of studies, 82 studies, 5,200 children showing that it, these kids can be effectively moved towards more positive outcomes through these evidence-based parenting programs.
If you look at the outcomes we get, this is the latest trial we've done. You can see this is with a sample of three to eight-year-old children with severe behaviour problems like you just saw, that are pre-treatment, most of them are up near the red line, which is a kind of full diagnosis for a conduct disorder. At post-treatment, they've come down to almost insignificant behaviour problems. And then at three-month follow-up, we're getting really good uh, maintenance of change in these kids. So this is really really uh, an, a powerful treatment. And you can bring in the economists and the bean counters on this and actually cost how much this is costing us as taxpayer. Now, the dollars that I've got here are done in $1999, so they're way out of date. But it costs us about, in those figures, $1,800 to treat every child with 10 individual sessions of treatment. This is about... The, sorry, these kids cost us about $14 million in untreated lifetime costs. And accounting on a 58% success rate with these kids, we can calculate the cost to the taxpayer of not treating these kids. And if you take, for example, the top, take the middle one, the top 8% of children with a conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder diagnosis, we could be reducing the costs of these kids by... 447 million a year by offering these evidence-based treatments. So they really are one of the great achievements of the mental health sciences. And I've, I'm going to put in a little plug now. I'm very excited that on Monday this week, the University of Sydney, in conjunction with the Movember Foundation, is about to introduce Australia's first free online evidence-based parenting programs for these kind of kids. So if you, if you want to do the program or you know anybody that you think might benefit it, from Monday we're going to do a national launch and then we're going to uh, launch ParentWorks as a major initiative uh, right throughout Australia. So please keep your eye on that. Okay, but what I thought I would do, instead of just rabbiting on about the science... I'm going to give you a parent training session right now so you can experience what it's like and then we'll talk about one little part of that. So I'm going to give you the world's fastest ever parent training session. So I want you to pretend that you're all parents that are struggling with, a, say, a four- and a six-year-old child and they scream and they fight and they swear and they tell you you're a waste of space and they won't get up in the morning and life is not very happy for you at the moment. Every day is the same battle. So you've come to a parent training person for help. This is the kind of thing that you might get from them. Okay, here we go. You're at home, you're cooking dinner. Everything is quiet. The kids are somewhere else in the house. What are you going to do? Call out to me. Keep cooking. <laughs> Keep cooking. It's like, oh my God, it's quiet. Not make a sound. If you, if you do need to go and check on them, you know what most parents look like when they go to check on them? They're like this. <laughs> Why? Because you don't want to let them see you <laughs> if, if they're doing anything because then you'll disrupt the quiet. So, okay, you see that no one's died, everything's safe. 
you go back to the kitchen, you keep cooking. What's going to happen sooner or later? Ah! He did this to me! What are you going to do now? <laughs> keep cooking. Keep cooking no matter what. Most parents at this point, if the screaming and the hitting, you've got to go in there. Okay? And what do we learn from this little story is that this is a trap we all fall into. That when they're quiet, you start doing what you need to do. And when they're not quiet and when they fight, you have no choice but to go and talk. What is going on in here? Touching, separating, doing all that stuff. Which one gives the children more attention? The second one. And when you see kids with major behaviour problems, the family gets into a really bad loop. They start to just pay attention more and more to the negative. Every day becomes a battle. It's very difficult. So, what do I want you to do? Go home tonight and I want you to catch your children being well-behaved. I want you to walk around the house like this, trying to spring them. Now, what would you like to see them do more of? Just call out to me. Being better behaved. What does that mean? Playing independently. Uh, so let's put it in a positive. So doing positive stuff. Playing, playing independently. Using their imagination. Reading. Following instructions. Speaking in a nice voice instead of like that. Okay, now, so what we do is we just go for the simple ones, following instructions, speaking in a nice voice, playing independently and so on. What are you going to do when you sneak around the house and you see your children doing one of those behaviours? What are you going to do? Okay, you're going to reward them. What kind of rewards? Positive reinforcement, so verbal first. So praise, this is the most one that everyone talks about in parent training programs, but it's the one in our program we care about the least. But it's still, it's okay. Praise them. I'm so pleased with you kids for playing nicely. Fantastic. What else can you do? Your time. Give them your time. This is the number one powerful reward we use in our program. You give them your time. You hang out with them. Hey, you just followed an instruction. I'm hanging out with you. It's something you don't hear a parent do very often, isn't it? <laughs> what else? Praise, your time, what else? Affection. Affection. Privileges. Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> Cash. <laughs> okay, now, what I want you to do tonight is go home and catch your children being good, go up and reward them with all sorts of crazy unpredictable stuff, right? Don't do the same thing. Don't use an elephant chart on the fridge with stickers. The first time, swing into the room on a rope with gifts. <laughs> the second time, take them to the park. The third time, do nothing but walk through the room and wink. <laughs> the next time, praise them. Erratic, unpredictable Rewards, And if you know anything about Skinnerian theory, you'll know why I'm saying that. We don't want to be predictable. We want to be on crazy schedules of reinforcement. Okay, 
So that's the first part of parent training. Now, I've given it to you in five minutes. That takes a full session of treatment. Let's go to the second part. So the, what we're trying to do here is increase the attention for positive behaviour. Now, the second part of it is we've got to take the attention for misbehaviour way down to no attention. How do you do that? Okay, let's act it out. I'm in the kitchen. I'm cooking. The child comes in and goes, what's that slop? I go, it's dinner. I don't want that. I want a, you know, a lamington. <laughs> what are you going to do? Talk, yeah. Generally we talk, don't they? You're not getting a lamington. And what's another thing? You're going to eat your blah, 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 blah. Like that. Okay? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And they go, oh, but I don't want that. I don't want it. I'm not going to eat that. I hate that stuff. Give it to me. No, you stop it. Now listen, I'm sick of this. It happens every night. <laughs> Okay, what are you going to do now? Child goes, mm, kicks you. Difficult. Okay, now, in parent training, kind of the standard treatment, what we're trying to do is up the amount of attention for positive behaviour, lots of love, lots of engagement, lots of praise. What we're trying to do here is reduce it, keep it really calm and so on. Now, what you get in nearly all of these programs is this. Number one, the child behaves. The first step is, you say to the parents, gain their attention. You know, there's no point yelling instructions out the window. There's no point yelling from other rooms. You go in there, you go to your child, you work the legs and you go, hey, come here for a second. Get their attention. The second thing is in all of these programs is it's that you try not to talk. So you minimise it. You just go, please don't talk to me like that. I want you to do this. Really calm, quiet, ninja voice. <laughs> now, if the child goes, oh, okay, mummy, I'll eat dinner. <laughs> oh, my God, what a beautiful voice. Straight into positive, right? But if they escalate, then what we usually do is just repeat the instruction again with a really quiet voice. Now, at some point, though, you're going to have to do something, aren't you? The kids just kicked you. The kids tearing the kitchen to pieces. What are you going to do? Think about it. What do you do in your home? The child's escalating. Now, here we go. This is what the talk's about. In most programs now, we use this thing called timeout. When I started doing this so many decades ago, people had never heard of it, you know, and they would, they would kind of a little bit horrified or they would challenge a lot. Nowadays, everybody does this time out. And do you know what it is? It's just quiet removal, calm removal of the child to a quiet place for a short amount of time. This is how we recommend it and use it in our program. Now we've done it with thousands of kids. Quiet time in a chair or another area of the room. Safe, neutral, boring. Time out ends when the child is quiet and under control. And for time out to work, as you've just heard, time in has to be fun, loving and full of praise because the whole thing is about differential attention. And if the house is so boring and the parents are so disengaged or so depressed, 
that going to time out is an increase in attention, the child will work to get it. This is very, very important to know. Now, so we've been doing this for many, many years, lots of evidence for it, but here's the thing now. We're starting to cop a lot of criticism from a new movement which is arising, increasing parenting advice against time out. Time out make kids see themselves as bad people. They don't learn emotion regulation. It works through fear. It doesn't teach kids how to handle emo you know, upsetting emotions. Power struggles. It keeps us from partnering with our child. Here's another one. This is, this is one that's, uh, that worries me a lot. Then there's a, a, a number of people in the States pushing this very hardly, that the child who experiences time out will suffer lifelong effects um, in terms of being a, unable to cope with their emotions. They'll develop finger-biting, scratching, tugging at clothes, self-pinching, similar behaviours, deny their emotions and affect the quality of their life throughout their lifetime. And there's, in particular, this idea of trauma-informed practice now, which is uh, not just uh, people on the web, but government policies are developing around trauma-informed practice, which, which is a really good thing. But unfortunately, it's carrying with it this idea that any child who's got a behaviour problem has, ipso facto, been traumatised. And that you cannot put a child who's been traumatised into a time-out situation. This is increasingly becoming kind of worked up as, as policy. Not everywhere, but in places. So we now have people starting to say we need to adopt other strategies instead of time-out. This is long-term harmful to children, etc. And this is an example of one that came from an Australian academic published in the conversation last year saying that you should not use time out or rewards of any sort with children. You should have these conversations. Now, I'm, I've, put this, I've put words into this one which are in brackets, which is stabbing mummy, because we're going <laughs> to watch that little boy with the stabbing mummy exercise. And according to this new idea of not using time out, what you should do is discuss it, something like this. I hear that you have some very big feelings about me stopping you from stabbing me. I don't mean to be hurtful, but stabbing can hurt people and make them sad. So the idea is to reflect back to the child what they feel, stop them doing the behaviour, reflect back to them what they feel and point out the consequences. Now this is called various titles, emotion coaching, promoting positive attachments, reflective engagement, sensitive parenting and all sorts of things. And you might think that that's a little silly and I, I, I apologise if it looks like I've set up a straw person there to look silly, but I'll give you an example of a very, very skilled parent that I worked with using exactly this technique with such a little boy. Laurie, I can't take you to the shops until I can see that you're able to control your body. Up at the bench, please. Corey's parents have put years of work into understanding this loop. 
and they still don't have the answers. You feel like you can't read things, but you can. And if you can't, I will help you. All right, we can't go to the shops yet then, because I can't take you to the shops if you're going to do that. It's too hard for me. Everything you try makes a small difference, and then it would go back to how he was before. His oppositional defiance disorder makes him want to defy. No, you don't need to hurt me. And his reactions are explosive. Can I just remind you? Don't, don't spit at me, that's not nice. Alright, you need me to go out of the room because that's not okay. You want to even run home because I can see that you're pretty upset and I'm kind of wondering if it's because you felt like you might not be able to do it. Corey's mum's very skilled doing what she'd read as a very high level intervention, which is say to the child it's not acceptable and then label their emotions with the idea that you're educating your child to be mindful about themselves. She is a very skillful mum and she'd spent many, many years trying to get treatments for this little boy, including taking the Australian family over Johns Hopkins uh, Medical School in the US to get trained in that technique, which is to, when the child is misbehaving, to say stop that, reflect back the behaviour so that the child experiences somebody empathising and mentalising with them. It's a very powerful segment, isn't it? And it's kind of tragic in a way. And for me... It's a beautiful intention, but the problem is, in terms of just basic learning theory, this is all round the wrong way. This little boy, like all children, wants to engage at a deep level with his mother. He can't do the work, he's frustrated, he's angry, and he's engaging in the stabbing in the eye behaviour, the spitting and all that, and it leads her to make eye contact, to talk to him, to reflect his emotions, all of the things that we know are the currency of attachment with a child. So what do we know from learning theory? He's going to do it again. So I'm a little concerned about the growth of these kind of attachment, some of these attachment emotion coaching type strategies. Now, so what is my solution I would like to share with you tonight? I want to just briefly talk about attachment theory and trauma-informed theory and look at them and say, are they telling us that we should not use discipline and time out with a child? But then I, I don't want to just reject them out of hand. I want to say, why are people concerned about time out? And I want to see if we can learn something to make sure that we are doing time out and discipline in the best way possible. So, the first one is, Back to undergraduate university. Do you remember what attachment theory was? It was originally Bowlby studied the orphan children of Europe who just showed no kind of connection with adults. And he said that humans have a fundamental drive to attach to the caregiver. <coughs> and when it's done in a healthy way, we talk about it as being secure attachment. Now, interestingly, do you know what secure attachment is? What is the core of a secure attachment? It's kind of ironic. And it was defined like this. You can tell a child who's securely attached 
by the fact that they can separate from their parents. You see a child that's happy, secure, they play independently, they explore their environment, they're creative. You see a child who is insecurely attached and they cling and they find it very hard to do things independently. A core of attachment is the idea that you can come and go into the relationship knowing it'll be there the next time. You can separate, you can have negative times knowing that you will be able to repair and come back. And you may think, think about that with your own relationships. If you have a good relationship with someone you love and trust, you know that you can go away, you know you can have a fight, you know you can disagree, you know you can have a break and that you will be able to come back. This is the essence of a truly secure relationship. Does attachment theory say anything about discipline and time out? No, it doesn't at all. It never said anything about these things. It says that a relationship is predictable and secure in its separations and its rapprochements, if you like. So it's interesting, when you think of it that way, discipline can be very pro-attachment because it's learning about having these ups and downs, these separations and these rapprochements successfully. What about trauma-informed? This is, this is a one that is now becoming pervasive in child psychology, trauma-informed practice. And it's very interesting. The idea is that we need to be very sensitive to the fact that kids have been traumatised. They've suffered adverse childhood experiences. Now, I'm going to talk to you as a clinician and a researcher here. It's interesting. I've been working for 30 years with kids with problems. It's very rare that you ever see clear PTSD in children. Do you know what I mean by that? In, in adults you see PTSD. People that have had terrible experiences, they, they recur in their mind, they avoid them, they're numbed and so on. Children, I've seen it. I saw it in a little boy who accidentally was involved in his brother's drowning. It was a terrible thing and he had pure PTSD. But generally children exposed to adverse events they don't have that kind of PTSD that we're talking about. They suffer more generalised disturbances of cognition and behaviour and emotion. And they express it according to their individual vulnerabilities. So kids that are vulnerable to anxiety will become more fearful. Kids that are kind of under controlled, exposed to adversity, will become more under controlled, more aggressive and so on. So these adverse experiences kind of ramp up the child's problems or good parenting ramps them down. Now, nothing I've seen upsets me more than when children who have been exposed to adverse in early environments get put into PTSD groups to try and work through their trauma. It's not what kids need. What kids need is to have really good day-to-day -day experiences of friendship and love and creativity and play, like that sort of thing. You treat the child, not the trauma. And part of that 
is giving kids love and discipline. Is there anything in trauma theory that says a child should not be given discipline and time out? No. Trauma is kind of silent and all that. However, in this big movement now in child psychology, some of the trauma-informed work is saying you cannot put a traumatised child into time out. And how do we know it's a traumatised child? Because they've got behaviour problems. So this is kind of a vicious loop that is occurring. So I'm going to argue to you that at their core, attachment and trauma theory are consistent with the use of effective discipline and timeout done within a loving, consistent, predictable environment. So what is driving this kind of worry about timeout? What can we learn from it? Now, as I said, I don't want to chuck out the baby with the bathwater. I, I want to say the people that are concerned about timeout, they're, they're good people. There is something that they can see that may be wrong. What is it that we can learn from this way of thinking? Okay, it's pretty obvious stuff. What should timeout never be? What people are worried about is the idea that you would put a child into a timeout, a separated situation, because they made a mistake. Secondly, because they were feeling something that was a vulnerability, fear, some other emotions like that. Timeout should never be humiliating or isolating or rejecting. It should never have an attachment <laughs> threat built into it or be based on fear or be unsafe. And at the risk of throwing in some current topics, we've all been horrified by what we've seen in the last little while in Australia. And unfortunately, these things are being put up on the internet and so on as examples of time out. Are they examples of time out? No. They're isolating, they're based on fear and separation and so on. This is not an effective timeout. So what should timeout be then? If you're going to do it as a parent or you're going to do it as a clinician, what should a, an effective discipline be? If remember, let's go back to that child. You're in the kitchen and he's going, F you, and he's starting to kick and so on. What do you do at that point? I would argue timeout is a really, really effective strategy. You remove the child and yourself for a brief period of time. But here's the way we can make it really, really useful, and this is the way we do it in our clinic. The first one is you kind of make it democratic and family-owned. And I'm surprised that most programs don't do this. If the child has to go into time out for not following family rules or so on, why shouldn't the parents go into time out? It should be for everyone in the family that there is a timeout area, purely, fully democratic and so on. And, you know, we do that in our clinic now, and parents always say to me, oh, I love it. <laughs> I deliberately misbehave. <laughs> I've got a novel stashed in there. <laughs> it should be child-empowered. Now, how do you do that it's, if the child's being disciplined? Well, it's really interesting. You can do this. 
we have these little techniques now where we set up the child and we rehearse the timeout with them in advance. We show them exactly how it's going to work. So we typically, if there's dad in the home, we'll get dad to be really naughty, you know, and go like this and do it. And mum's like, stop that, please. Can you please just play nicely? And then dad escalates and then we let the child put the dad into timeout. If there's no dad, we'll often do it with a pet or a, or a teddy bear or something like that. And we let the child see exactly how it's going to work and we train them that when anybody goes into timeout, all you've got to do is chill, breathe, get the emotions under control, be happy, back into time in like that. And we train the child up so they've got this empowerment and they understand that they have power to change this situation, not to be a victim of it. So what is time out? And this is what I would, I would like to offer you tonight if you work in this area or something. How do we think about time out? I'm going to say there's four things that are really important for us to think about. The first one is, yes, it is a punisher. There's no point trying to pretend it's not, right? You, you've done something wrong, you're going to a quiet area, a chair or something like that. So yes, in terms of Skinnerian operant theory, this is a punishment, a loss of reward. And that's important. But secondly, it should be an emotion regulation strategy. In other words, that everyone in the family or the school or whatever is running this, that there is a place to go where you can regulate your emotions, chill out, and then that empowers you to be back in the situation. And there's, I'm so happy to see now, especially with kids with autism spectrum and so on, there are these safe spaces where the kids are being trained to regulate their emotions in difficult environments and use this kind of empowered time-out strategy. Now, here's the one that is a, a new idea that I've never heard other people talk about, and that's this. The attachment people are saying, don't use time-out, it's a threat to attachment. Now, I would say it's not a threat to attachment, but I would take it further, and I would say time-out, if done correctly, is actually an opportunity to repair damaged attachments. <coughs> now, why do I say that? You, I think you've kind of heard where I'm going with this. But when you get stuck in it with a child and you're feeling bad about each other and there's daily conflict, discipline is the vehicle with which we go to some very dark places. And in the parents I see that have been traumatised in their own childhoods and had yucky things happen and all that, when they're in the middle of a screaming match with their child and it brings up all sorts of intergenerational stuff, that's when the ugly attachment material comes out. Even if it doesn't come out of your mouth, it's stuff like, I wish I'd never had you. I wish I wasn't here now. You remind me of my uncle. I hate this. All of this stuff. And so we enact this intergenerational kind of attachment trauma in the context of daily discipline. That needs to be stopped to get kids on a healthy pathway. 
And by using time out done in this way, what we're saying is, I love you the way I always love you. It's fine. This is just naughty behaviour that gets followed by this boring time out. It's not about hatred, it's not about rejection, it's not about isolation, it's about you and I learning that we can go, enough is enough just for now, but we're still, we're still good together, we're still safe, just go and chill out, I'll be here, and then we can reunite. So time out thought of in that way is actually an opportunity to set up and repair this kind of attachment difficulties that are so often associated with behaviour and early onset mental health problems. And the last one, and this is one I only kind of made explicit in my own mind yesterday as I was putting this talk together, and that is because we always tell parents to do this, but I've never really formulated it clearly in my mind. If you are using time out with a child, something's wrong. And these attachment people are telling us the child should be learning something, not just going into time out. I think that's a great idea. You follow up later. You can't say to a child who's kicking you and saying, I want lamingtons for dinner, let's talk about dinner, what's the rules and all that now. You need to do something. You need to chill it out. You need to stop the damage from happening. And then when the child later is calm, you need to revisit and talk and go back on it and discuss the rules of what's for dinner and, what, and kicking and all of those sort of things and take the opportunity for learning later when things are calm. So I think when we look at time out this way, you can see that it can be a very, very positive strategy. I thought I'd show you one. This is a, this is one, uh, a father we worked with. Um, and this is his first attempt at using time out with a little boy who was diagnosed with ADHD, but we thought it wasn't severe enough to go the medication route. We said, let's treat it with some parenting stuff. The boy, little boy did really well, but the school wanted him out. The parents were very stressed, and so we put a little program into the home. This is Dad's with his first attempt with the little boy. While Janine's at work, Daryl gets a chance to hone his skills. Right, Mr. you need to find something else to do. Stop this windy tone, or you'll be seeing, or you can have a time out. Okay, so you go away and find something else to do. All right, time out. Yes, come on. Come on. Time out time. Come out when you're calm. Okay, Dad, come on, leave him. Time out. That's right, leave him. Time out until you can be calm. Oh, it's funny, no matter how much you do this, my heart still goes up, you know, with watching someone do time out. Not about you, Mark, shut up. It's really hard to hear that and see that, but um, I stick to it to, and hopefully the end result will be shorter and shorter. Daryl's very good. He's very calm. He's starting to regulate. Get him now, Daryl. Get him now. 
Come on, let him out. <laughs> I want it to be a success. That's it. Be calm now. Okay, you come out. Okay. Okay. So we've seen there that Daryl's got a very calm demeanour, he has lots of power, he communicates it, and so on. And so this is working for the little boy. Now you can see that little boy is still a little bit upset when he comes out of there. There's a little bit of repair needed. If we just wait till a little, he's doing something nice again, go in there and engage positive with him. Get him going with the time in again something happy. And then later that night, if there was anything that he needed to learn, we just spend a little bit of time before he goes to sleep and talk it through with him. Now that, even though it's just such a little simple technique, this boy was just tantruming all day long. The family is falling apart by having that simple strategy to say, let's just stop this before we all go crazy and, and go into dark places of you know rejection and so on is a very powerful technique for families and so on okay so what is the core of this you would never ever use time out on its own the core of these parenting interventions is all about this balance to make discipline work, you've got to have time in is going. You've got to have engagement, love, warmth, structure, learning, rewards and so on. Once you've got that positive going, it's very easy then to say when misbehaviour occurs, we temporarily just stop that stuff and we use a predictable, democratic, attachment positive type discipline strategy. And just one final case example. It's a kid uh, from a couple of years ago, and I put this up because he was arguably traumatised. And these are, this is a very common sort of case that we see in our clinic. Alex, seven-year-old, temper tantrums, aggressive, saying, I hate you constantly to his, uh, to his single mother. Non-compliance, crying at certain times becoming what looked like very depressed, saying, I'm shit, unable to sleep alone, separation problems. And before his parents uh, separated, he was exposed to two years of rather ugly domestic violence. He then went through the marital separation and he now has time with his father, which is quite difficult for him. Um, he's had, he had previously a number of ineffective treatments, which was individual trauma-informed therapy with Alex himself, which makes me very upset. There is no evidence that works. And do you know that in Australia, it's the one that Medicare will pay for? You are, we are not reimbursed for seeing Alex's parents. We are reimbursed for seeing Alex. And so all over town, therapists are seeing children and doing non-evidence-based interventions with these kids. Makes me very annoyed. The mother was also trained in emotion coaching with this little boy. So whenever he said, I hate you, I hate you, she would say, Alex, I can see that you're very upset. And he would just do it constantly. We conceptualised him as needing a lot of supportive exposure for his fears. We needed to do emotion coaching when he's calm, there's no doubt about that. But to help him to benefit from this, we needed to stop 
his behaviour first. And so we trained his mum that when he said, I hate you and blah, blah, and spat and all that sort of stuff, she just did a very calm time out that he'd been trained in. And when he wasn't doing that, she gave him all the love and attention that she could uh, generate. And we got very good effects from these kinds of treatments. So I'm going to just finish with a, a quote from one of my favourite people, Stephen Fry. And I have been very naughty here because I have changed something that he said, because he didn't say, I don't recall time out. He actually, being an English public school boy, he said, I don't recall a good thrashing. <laughs> so he was talking about the English punishment system when he was a child. But it's a very interesting point. I don't recall the issues of being disciplined. I recall being humiliated and rejected and so on. And it's true. It's, you know, these kind of little discipline things, if you're in a solid relationship with your parent, they're okay. They're not the things that upset you. It's humiliation and rejection and all that that may go along with these things. So I'm going to say thank you at that point. I'm going to say if you put your email address on there, we're so grateful because we will contact you to be a research partner with us in terms of one survey. But that's it from me. Thank you very much. And we've got time for some questions, I think, uh, before we go tonight. So I have two questions. The first question is, what age would you start using timeout? And the second one is, if you try but they don't stay there, what do you do? <laughs> Practical questions. I would start timeout around the toddler years when they're just getting old enough to understand what's going on and so on. Um, if they won't stay there, we actually start at the, the lowest level of, of kind of um, coercion. That's not the right word, but the lowest level that we need to do to get the child to comply. So if they won't stay there, they're completely out of control, we will make a very, very safe, secure, boring time and environment that they have to stay in and that might be a locked door. So we have done that with families, but we make sure the child is empowered, they know what's going to happen, we make sure it's safe, we make sure it's attachment secure, and then we start there so the parent and the child feel contained. And then as soon as we can, we go back to the step before, which is a chair in the open. Oh, and I, and I should say, rehearse the child in advance. The rehearsal is the best way of preventing that from happening. Uh, yep, I just had another question sort of similar to that. Have you had any experience where children haven't calmed down? So after three minutes or five minutes, they're still tantruming, screaming, crying. Yes. When, when, I, uh, when I first started, I, I was like in my 20s in, in Queensland and uh, I remember we had a little boy and he was referred to us through docs and he was biting and screaming and they'd been tr trying to treat this little boy for years so he was isolated from other children and really on a terrible, terrible pathway. And in the previous treatments, they had implemented a timeout but whenever he'd got to the point they couldn't stand it, they'd let him out. And so we just knew this was going to be World War III, this was going to be terrible. 
We rehearsed him. We empowered him as much as we could. We set up a safe environment. But at the end of the day, we said, you have to not bite and hit. And we used the timeout and we sat there. And I remember as a 20-something-year-old, I sat there with the mum and we went through pots and pots of tea and all that. And it was, it was frankly, traumatising. But he, after a lot of time, he kind of fell asleep. And then the, we woke him up and, you know, made sure he was okay and all that sort of stuff. The next time we did timeout, it lasted about 10 minutes. Next time it was about 30 seconds. So that's an extreme case. In most cases, you rehearse the child, you empower them, you train them in emotion regulation strategies, you, you give them role models of that and you try and give them all of the skills to do that when they're calm. You don't discuss that when they're in the middle of time out, you do it on other days. So you can say, hey, what are you doing? You want to learn how to handle time out today? Come and hang out with me. And you train the child up in it. It's very, very positive. That's the way I'd mostly recommend. One here. Yep. How do you reconcile what you should, what you've been saying about treating children in the home, with what teachers have to put up with because they're really being told they can do very little with a troublesome child? This is such a good question. Um, I I don't know the answer to that, but at the moment we are in a crazy situation in schools and we don't know fully what to do. What I'm talking to you now about is in the home, in a relationship between a caregiver and a child where there's an attachment relationship and so on. What do we do at a school when you're a teacher and there's a child who's doing this? Now, at the moment, we are in a difficult situation where a lot of the schools are pulling back from any kind of program. And the one I hate the most, but we get this in our clinic all the time now, is the schools now that evacuate the whole classroom. And then oh, it's like, no, he's four years old and he's throwing a tantrum. And they evacuate the classroom and leave the child in there to make the other children safe. It's like, this is, this is madness. I am pleased to see that most schools now are developing a policy of discipline, including possible quiet times and so on, where they set up a partnership with the parents. They make it very clear what's going to happen and it develops an empowered, kind of predictable thing with the child, the family and the school. This is a good way to go. But we've seen in the last week that the family with the child with autism, she said they, she was never told that the child was being put in the playground. The school says, yes, we did. We set it up carefully. So it can still go wrong. But without going into the specific techniques, the best thing that can happen are partnerships, all for the child's welfare. Can you produce a website for teachers in the same way that you've produced it for parents? <laughs> There's a job that needs to be done there. I suspect there might be one. I'll look into that. Thank you. Yes. There's one here too. Uh, I have a... Uh, just, just here. Hello. Oh, sorry. Over here. To your left. <laughs> Hi. I couldn't recognise where the sound was coming from. Sorry. <laughs> um, so my question is about the application of timeout to uh, forms of... I guess misbehaviour that aren't antisocial, like kicking and screaming and biting. 
if you've got a child and they've got so the family rules say, for example, you need to take your bowl to the sink um, when you finish with breakfast or plate to the sink after dinner. Um, okay, so please take your plate to the sink and a, a sort of apathetic response where the yes. child wanders away and says, well, actually, no, you do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, do do timeouts apply there? Uh, that's a very good question. Thank you very much. Um, now, because, you know, you can see that I'm the clinician, so I'm always going to extremes, you know. Now, I should say that when you have just minor child behaviours, niggly misbehaviours, we, the first thing we recommend is that you uh, become very good at planned ignoring. That's one. So if, if um, a child is kind of just whinging at you or you've said no and they're going, you know, like that, we just, we don't sit there and talk. We just go like, just walk away. And that one is very good if the child is just trying to engage in a battle with you, planned ignoring. It's very good if you in a happy home, your children are okay. If you try and teach that to young parents that are abuse risk and so on, it's very dangerous because planned ignoring often has an escalation. So it's a tricky one. But if, you, if you're feeling good with that, planned ignoring is great. The second one is, you might have noticed on my slide where it said child escalates, I actually had time out and natural consequence. If you can do a natural consequence that works for you, your children are reasonably well behaved, they're just doing normal kid stuff like, you know, whatever, then I would use the natural consequence whenever you can. You don't put your bowl away, there's no dessert. Do you know what I mean? So, but they're very hard to think up on the spot. <laughs> and when we're doing the work clinically, it's too much to have a, you know, an often stressed or depressed parent figure all those ones out. But if you've got one that's happening every day and it's very annoying and you go, I don't think this warrants time out, then set up an empowered partnership with the child where the natural consequence is going to occur. That's my advice for that one. Um, what kind of strategies would you recommend for teenagers? Because I'm assuming by the time they're big enough to be able to just leave time out on their own or do, do the same kind of strategies work for older children? Uh, the, yes. Now, so it's, again, a great question. The principles are the same, but we have to enact them differently, right? Because we're not going to be picking up the 16-year-old you know, <laughs> and putting him in time out, right? We're going to get banged on the head or something. So the first thing we always say is, as the child gets older, you, you, set up, you can set up like three buckets, right? And you say, when you're very young, most of the stuff that is uh, rules and so on is determined by us. But as you get older, we're going to put more stuff in your bucket like that. So you're always trying to get them to be more and more independent and, and pushing the, that so that they're almost sort of stopping you. I don't want that much freedom. Pushing that, pushing that. And part of that is including them in the rules for what's going to occur and not going to occur. And, you, and as you know, you can't discuss those when things are hot and disagreement. They've got to be done at cool family meetings with lots of sugary snacks and fun. And you set up the rules and people agree on them like that. So that's very important. Um, the second one is the tech, and you can't use timeout. It's got to be a natural consequence that they kind of shake on and agree on. Also, rewarding a teenager is difficult. Do you know what I mean? You can't do all that stuff I was talking about before. Hey, I'm so proud of you. you know. 
whatever. <laughs> and we don't like to uh, just you know, give out cash and computer time. You, you should include that, but like I said in the reward stuff, you've got to vary it. And the one that's really hard with the teenager, or the two that are really hard, spending time with them. What do they want to do? Because often they'll say, I want to play on the computer. And if you want to spend time, you have to watch this horrible computer game. You know? But do you really want to spend time? That's, that's an important one. And the second one is, how do you give love and affection and connection and attachment and all that to a sweaty 16-year-old who grunts? Very tricky. But I got an idea. This one was given to me by a colleague of mine that I love and respect so much from Queensland who was a psychodynamic guy. And he said, Mark, you behaviorists, there's no point trying to praise teenagers. You've got to find a way to love them. And in order to love a teenager, you've got to extend the time frame of your relationship. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, forget they're 16. Forget about talking about what they're doing today. Go back to when they were two. Go into their room with photos of them when they were two and talk to them about then. Say to them, what is it going to be like when you're 28? Where will you be living? Will you and I be friends? What, what, what do you want it to be like? And talk to them about that. I've been having a lot of success with that one. That's really cool. So you take them out of that immediate time frame, extend the attachment and find a way to relate like that. So I'd recommend that. I'd recommend spending time with them and then the, all the other rewards and that that you can set up the discipline as a, as a cooperative, empowered family meeting thing. I have a question. Uh, why does a child have insecure attachment to its parents? Sorry, can you say that again? Why does a child have insecure attachment? Why does a child have insecure attachment? There's probably a number of reasons. The, 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 most, the clearest one we know about is simply that they have not, been, have not experienced a predictable, secure, caregiving environment. So in Bowlby's original children, they'd been left in orphanages. And so their experiences of caregiving was purely routine, structured feeding and so on like that. So they had very, very bad attachments. In less severe situations, like in Australian homes and so on, children develop mostly insecure attachments by the caregiving relationship being unpredictable. The parent uh, rejecting them at times of need, neglect, um, running off and so on. Is there any evidence that certain children come into the world with insecure attachments primed? Very little. There's some emerging that certain children may be very difficult to attach with, but we, we, most of the evidence in the science now indicates that an insecure attachment of a child comes from experiences of unpredictable you know, care, caregiving, where the child's needs are not met. Um, how important is it for each of the parents to be consistent themselves and then as between both parents for each for them to be operating in a consistent unit? Um, and how much inconsistency 
can be tolerated within these frameworks? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, in, in, the, uh, in our parents' work, which we, we're launching on um, Monday, it's such a big issue for parents that we have its own little module that parents can, uh, you know, kind of choose to go on and do working as a team. Parents, people are going to always disagree and not be totally eye to eye. That would be ridiculous to expect that. But when it crosses over into conflict in front of the child or that one, either parent is disempowered by the behaviour of their partner, then it can become a problem. And you'll see that children ex will naturally exploit that um, very, very quickly. We don't want children to be exposed to conflict that's unresolved and we don't want them to be in environments where they can kind of disregard a, a cooperative relationship with one parent by manipulating another and so on. So how much is a bad thing? Well, you know, I, I can't say how much, but those things when they are occurring, we know don't help. And they certainly don't help our parenting programs. So we always have that a module in there that says, work as a team, get on the same page, do it together, and it really does enhance outcomes for children through these sort of programs. Does that answer the question? James. Yep. Um, Mark, I'm putting on a bit of a clinician's lens. Um, is time out and more so your broader treatment program applicable? applicable for um, children with autism or intellectual disabilities? Uh, it's, yes, not just ours, but all of these evidence-based programs um, add a lot of value. They, the, what you might call transdiagnostic. And as I said before, p good parenting is the clean water of these things. And if you've got a child with anxiety problems or autism spectrum or hyperactivity, conduct problems, it's hard to parent these kids. It's really, really hard. And these kids develop problematic behaviour. How do we try and fix it? We try and fix it through these kind of programs. The evidence is the strongest for children with conduct problems, but if you take Triple P and all of the, the major programs like that, they have very good evidence with autism and so on, but you have to modify them ever so slightly. And what my experience is, you can't modify them, you know, in the manual for autism. What you've got to do is, like a family I worked with only uh, last month or so, they had a little boy with autism, but he was very cruel and he was torturing the cat and so on. And I said, I'm going to train you in the program that we use here, but you need to be the expert about what it's like to reward or discipline this little boy with autism, how that works for you. And if we put the science together and your knowledge of this little boy's quirks and needs, we can form a team and get through this. And we did. We, we got massive change in that little boy. So they, you need to fine-tune them, but the core of them is there. The question was... All, most of your examples were time out in the home. What do you do about when you're out? Well, it's, it's, it's such a good question that our module after time out is what do you do when you're out of the home? <laughs> because let's face it, you know, 
traveling in the car and shopping and all that, these things become nightmares for parents. And a lot of the families we see have got to the point where they're now isolating themselves and not taking the child out. And this is not good, you know, they're getting restricted. So what we do is we, uh, we get the child and the parent cooperating in the home and then we pick a number of high-risk situations and start with the easiest, like shopping trips. Uh, in the car, whatever, and then we train the child as an equal partner how to act in those environments. And it, because you haven't got time out, so you've got to you've got to kind of generalise and set the child up for success and train them what behaviours and so on. So it would take me too long to tell you exactly how that's done, but parent works on Monday has it <laughs> has that has that module. Uh, I've got a question. Um, I've seen timeout used uh, that children can only come out of timeout when they apologise or say sorry. Or, in your experience, is that effective, or is it just about the child being calm and then you address it? No, I, I mean, look, there's no absolute golden rule here. You've got to go with the principles. What we want is the child to come back into time in and engage and and go. This is family life. This is fantastic. And if you've got the child having to come out and engage in this now this thing again, that's not a usually a good way. If a, if, a, if a parent said to me that works for them, I wouldn't say stop doing it. But, you know, if you're going to be outside time out going, okay, are you ready to say you're sorry? What, what you better to do is we're trying to get the child to come out of time out with a nice face on and then wait till they're doing something nice and then come join with them and all that. And then maybe when they're calm, talk about how it felt for the other person and if they wanted to say sorry and all that. But not as a, not as a coercive. Yeah. Uh, just a quick question. So regarding like the children being with their emotions and for them to feel comfortable with what they're feeling, what do you think about you being with them when they're in timeout and sort of talking through what they're feeling and being with their feelings? Uh, if it would work, I would be all for it, but I've never seen it work. You know what I mean? If you, you ever, most of the kids I work with, they're screaming and, and so on like that. And if the mum, especially the mum, poor mum, if she comes and stays with the child, it's just the aggression and all that continues. You, you've got to have a little bit of distance. That's my experience with that. If it worked, fantastic. But generally, if you're with the child, there's, that just means you're engaged, the same conflict's going to go on. If you try and talk to the child, they're just going to be arguing back. So time out is about a calm, attachment-solid reduction in attention. No talking, no calm, until we're all calm, we start again. So we usually say, no, no talking, like that. Well, we wait for that one, Mark. I, I have one. Um, so, uh, <laughs> You're not allowed to ask me a question. <laughs> I am Mark's PhD student, so I, I already know the answer. But anyway, um, how do you reward behaviors that you want to motivate uh, children to be intrinsically motivated in those behaviors? So, for instance, like uh, like the like reading, for example, things like that. Yeah, it's a well, that's a great question, Tony. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's um, if you if you want to look at just the science of intrinsic motivation, lots of people are intrinsically motivated. It's fantastic. 
and all that. We don't need external rewards. But if you want to just look at the law of making an organism, whether it's a child or a vole or anything intrinsically motivated, you know what the best way is? Reward them externally first. Put them on a intermittent, unpredictable uh, pattern of reward and then slowly just withdraw it. And the person just keeps shooting for it. It's, it's amazing. Intrinsic re uh, motivation and that is nearly always comes from a child who's been encouraged and supported and rewarded externally first. So I would, you know, a lot of parents say that I don't want a child who's going to do it because it's a, a reward. And I'm like, you're exactly right. Of course we don't. But we've got to get the momentum up. We've got to get them to see that, you know, perform the behaviour and see that it's rewarding in and of itself to be nice to people, to be creative and all that. So we need to get establish those behaviours and let them then drive themselves. I'm sorry, there was one up there first. Uh, yeah, you talked about the consistency is important between parents. What about grandparents? <laughs> Particularly where they're minding a child one or two days a week. Yeah, you know, it's such a funny thing because I just always feel like grandparents and that are such an underutilised resource with kids and childcare and all of that in Australia. And yet on the other hand, in my clinical work, I've had to perform a number of grannyectomies at times. <laughs> The, the two kids I showed you on the video there, there was a granny living in the home and, I mean, she was a third child and they were just spending all day fighting and bickering and stealing from each other. I was like, oh, my God. And then, I, I, you know, I was like, okay, bring granny in. I'm going to work with her. And, of course, she came in and she was like, acted like she was interested in what I was saying for about three minutes. And I went, okay. <laughs> she was like, you're not teaching this old dog anything. So the grandparents can get caught up in the problem as well, you know, like that, um, and may need to be brought in as part of the solution. But generally, I would say, if you've got more caregivers there, that's fantastic. But... When we work with families now, we say the parenting team is very complex. It can be anything from a single mum up to two parents and grandparents and so on. It could be one we had a, a year or so ago where mum brought in her new gay partner and dad brought in his new gay partner and a couple of friends as well. <laughs> and the parenting caregiving team gets very complex. And so it's, it's, as a clinician, it's difficult. But what you're trying to achieve is who is the core team? How can we get them so at the least they're not fighting and so on and undermining each other? At best, they're working as a cooperative team for the child. And that, that can be a complex issue that involves all sorts of in-laws. Ah, oh, sorry, yes. Um, how do you start the conversation about introducing your child to timeout? For the first time. You got any tips around that? Uh, well, most of the families that we see, of course, are, are desperately wanting help to do that. So we go through and we set up a partnership and, you know, we're going to see what we can do to make your child a lot happier, you a lot happier and so on. And then we do, basically, once we've got that partnership set up, you say, you're ready to go, let's do it. Let's start some super parenting to fix this. And then we do exactly what 
I just did with you before, catch a child being good, you know, disciplinary routine. Oh, I'm sorry, you mean to the child? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, this, this is the way I say it to parents, but I'm sure there's a million ways to do it. It's like, family meeting, new system. We're starting a new system. From now on, children that are doing good stuff are going to find out about it. But if you do lose control, hit, anything like that, we're all going to set up a family timeout area. Watch Dad now, and then we do it like that. We model it for the child, so it's not like this is you. And you know, and and you know, Martin, who's been to three psychologists, is sitting there going, Ugh. and his sister, who's you know, ducks of the schools, going. It's like we're setting up a new system for our family, like that. Yeah. Speaking in a microphone, do I have to do it? You have to. Yeah. <laughs> It just occurred to me when you were talking at the beginning and you mentioned, you know, time out, yay, going away for the weekend, um, that there isn't such a, a big divide, is there, between time out, yay, going away and enjoying it and, and you know, giving a child or a teenager some time out with love. You know, that, that withdrawing, do you need time to chill? Yes. You know, do you need... Some time on your own, yes. Um, so that, so that, because we all do sometimes. We all do. And it's yeah. It's kind of getting accustomed to having that sort of time for oneself. I love the way you put it. If it can, if somehow you can get a child to see that there's a, that you, there's time when you need to just chill out. You need time on your own, and so on. Very important. And I'm very pleased to see some of the schools are getting that successfully done now with the kids that are really difficult in the classroom. And increasingly you get kids now that like, time myself out, go and chill out, you know, like that. So you're right, it's a very good thing. Yep. Does um, the child develop any negative association with the area of the time out? We're interested in... Um, trying out the strategy and just trying to make it as smooth as possible from the beginning. Um, so, um, for example, a two-year-old, if we were to choose an area within their bedroom, would there be anything that um, may not be a good area for them to be? Uh, no, it needs to be safe and, and neutral and boring like that. You, 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 you can't condition a child to fear a situation or anything like that unless you pair it really strongly with humiliation and aversion and pain and all that. It's not about that. It's about going to a quiet space until you can regulate yourself. So as long as it's just safe and neutral, preferably boring, and the child is set up in advance, you'll be, you'll be fine. Yep. My goodness, the questions are accelerating instead of petering out. I can't pick. You pick, Tony. Hi. Okay. Um, I was just curious, in your clinic, so what is your success rate like with, say, kids that are, have really multiple or complex um, disorders? So, say, they've yeah. got ADHD, ODHD yeah. and autism. Yes. And um, I just had to write it down. And you might have parents who are really good at putting all the 
of strategies into practice. Yes. Are there kids that are just so resistant to um, seeing any improvement? Or? Uh, have, have I failed to help parents? Absolutely. Um, the data on the 60% success rate, it comes from many, many, many studies and most of them are clean studies. In other words, what they do is they tend to screen out children with multiple problems. And that's the science always starts with those kind of clean studies then going. So that your 60% your success rate is kind of there's the real world, there's the clean studies, you get a 60% success rate there. When you go to the children with much more complex issues, um, some of the kids I showed you on the video there had autism spectrum, anxiety, conduct problems and so on. It gets much harder then and you, you need to do the, this parenting program but you often need to do it at the same time with medication and a school intervention and so on. And um, in the show we did, Kids on Speed, that was the ABC called it, um, we, we tried to hit a sweet spot with the paediatrician with the medication, the pairing intervention and so on to get that. But you're, you're right, the more complex the child becomes, the, the success rate goes down, and the more complex the family becomes. So if you've got parents with their own mental health issues or substance abuse and so on, it gets very hard. So that's, that's the real world though. But that's the same if you're taking antibiotics for an infection. You find all that other stuff and the success rate goes down as well. It's very interesting in psychology that we wear that complexity of, of the real world, whereas in medical interventions you don't go, you know, surgery for this is compromised by, you know, a chaotic drug-fueled environment, which it is. But that's the truth of our thing. We're trying to get impact on these disorders goes down. But we, we do sit at about 50% success in most of the cases, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, just a couple of things. I was curious, what sort of time frame are you looking at if, if it was um, the techniques were applied relatively well? Um, and also, do you have much issue with power struggles with the democratic timeout, like with the kids sort of turning to the parents and saying, you know, you said this straight, you know, it's your turn and that. Yeah, the, the, in terms of the time frame, um, the, most of these programs range from a few weeks to, in the States, some of them go up to 16 weeks. Um, our, ours full program is 10 weeks, which we can do online or, you know, um, live and so on. So that's a once a week parents checking in. But once you've assessed the case and then you do the positive and you do the discipline strategy, the change usually starts then and then you get fine tuning. And the fine tuning is where the parents come in and go, he's telling me this or I don't know what to do here and we, we teamwork it together and we fine tune it. So those kind of issues. Because there's always going to be some coming back from the child and we have to get it right for that particular family. But change is usually within that kind of first two to three weeks like that. And we usually say to parents, if the child does say that to you, you know what, comply. There was one of the most beautiful studies I've ever seen. It was in the United States, 1980s, and this brilliant hero of mine, he just did this big study and he said to the parents, for the next week, I just want you to follow your, child, your child's instructions. And if you're a parent, 
listen when you go home and listen how often your child instructs you, gives you instruction and then watch carefully how often you comply. Because I'm telling, you know, if you're like everyone else I know that's done this, it's close to zero. I can't do that now. I'm too busy. Oh, no, 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 no. And when he got the parents to comply with their children, their kids' rates of compliance skyrocketed as well. So I would say don't fight it through the first time you go, you're right, I raised my voice. What a beautiful model that is. (laughs) One last magnificent question. What about if your school is not allow you to use timeout because it's bad label for the children? But however, there are some children obviously have traumas and then hurting the other children. So it's quite hard not using this strategy. But are you talking about I, in the home or in the school? School. Yeah. They won't let you use it. Yeah. Was... We are we are not allowed to use timeout. We use another term like cool down. Oh, or right. calm down time, yes. or quiet time, or reading time by yes. themselves. But we are not allowed to separate them, but still involve the children in the group. That's, that's, that's okay. I know what you're saying. I'm sorry. They, you can't use the word time out. Isn't that crazy? Now it's become like anti-policy to use that. So the principle stays the same. Who cares what we call it? The point is when the children are behaving themselves and being creative and playing life, lots and lots of rewards, lots of engagement. As soon as a child is losing control or is not regulating, we have to have a quiet, whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Safe time. Chill out, Bill. And something like that, that everybody agrees on, the children know exactly what's going to happen and so on. It's very important. And I also heard your word say the word, what happens if other children are traumatized? I'm worried that you've got a trauma-informed theorist coming in now saying you can't do this. I don't know how to fight that except give talks like this. But it doesn't have to be called time out. You can still enact the same positive principles. So what about yeah, I'm not sure I can answer this. I'm, I'm a bit worried that, you know, what what that means. You're a, you're a teacher, I gather. Yes. No, no, no. There's something, there's, there's a child in your group that's got major problems and you're restricted in how you can manage it. You need to get clever psychological support to come in and sort this out to support you to know what to do. And if you haven't got that, I would suggest you f- try and make sure that the powers that be support you to know what to do. Because increasingly teachers are being put in this situation and they've told you can't do that, you can't do this, and they don't know what to do. And when that happens, we end up having cages and stuff like that because people are desperate. You know, so I would say get your try to get yourself support and say, I need to know how to manage this. I need some expert psychological support to come in and, and teach me how to manage this in the classroom. That's what I would do. Because I can't answer that now about that child. I think we're... Oh, okay. No, I think you're right, Mark. I think um, we'll wrap it up there. Um, So can we give a round of applause to Mark? Thank you.